KOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, December the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this Monday edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air... 273-5211 or elsewhere it's toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626 well hopefully you had yourself a nice weekend and if you're in the St. John's, Mount Pearl the metro region uh, today keep your eyes peeled for members of the Holy Heart Choral Program today's Carol Graham Day so you may indeed be lucky enough to be in a workplace or someone's home where all of a sudden who appears but the Holy Heart Choir to sing you a couple of carols so it's Carol Graham Day how about that alright so it's the last week of shows for 2022 as we get geared up for the holiday season hopefully you've had a, a chance to tune in throughout the course of the year and hopefully you'll contribute to the program this week now we're happy to talk about whatever's on your mind so whether it be the big issues of the day any questions or concerns that you have also feel free to loosen it up and talk about, you know, whether or not you're traveling to visit some family and friends you haven't seen for a while for this holiday season. Or they're coming home and looking for that kiss and cry as they come down the escalator or the stairs at St. John's International Airport or wherever you are. So we can take it all on here today. The good, the bad, the ugly, and maybe some happy and some positive. How about that? All right. So, of course, you know what I was at yesterday afternoon. Now, when... There was a lot of excitement in the country for this year's edition of the FIFA World Cup. Of course, it's the first time that the men had qualified since back in 1986 with a game where they beat Honduras in 85 here at King George V. So there was a lot of anticipation and a lot of people hoping Canada would do themselves proud, and I think they did. So just a couple of things leading up to the culmination of excitement yesterday in the final between France and Argentina. So take a look at Canada's group. So we're in there with Belgium, the number two ranked team in the world, and Croatia and Morocco. Talk about a tough group as it all pans out. Morocco and Croatia made it to the semis. Croatia eventually wins the consolation final and the bronze medal. But yesterday, the final between France and Argentina, billions of people around the world tuned in. I'm not so sure I've ever seen anything like it. People were quick to dub it the best World Cup final ever, where the Argentinians defeat France in penalty kicks. Now, I'm always torn as to whether or not I think penalty kicks to decide a champion like that is the right way or the wrong way to go, but that's the way it is. So France was trying to become the first back-to-back champions since 1962 when Brazil pulled off the trick. And then it was advertised as the Kylian Mbappe, the French goal-scoring superstar, versus the legend that is Lionel Messi. And boy, they did their jobs. Messi scores twice, Mbappe with the first hat-trick in the World Cup final for decades, and Argentina comes out on top. They dominate for 70 minutes, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, France is back in it. Between the penalties and the misses and the chances and the goals and the excitement and the mistakes, it was a sight to behold. Now, whether or not it's the greatest final of all time, I don't know. It's certainly the greatest soccer match that I've ever seen, or football, pardon me. But so the golden ball goes to Lionel Messi. He's only the first player in all time to ever win that award twice. The golden ball is the best player in the World Cup tournament itself. Mbappe wins the golden boot as the highest goal scorer. I mean, a hat trick. And both of those boys also made their penalties to decide the outcome of this year's edition. But, you know, you've heard me mention it in the past, whether or not Messi is the best player of all time with seven players of the year, two golden balls, now a World Cup. 
A diminutive presence at five foot seven, 148 pounds. The best goal scoring crea- goal scoring creator that I've ever seen. And now I guess the argument is going to be pretty hard to dispute that Argentinian Lionel Messi, best player of all time. But if you watched that match yesterday, and I don't know what the actual rating stats are. But certainly, billion plus, billion plus, watched the World Cup final yesterday. It was just something else. Boy, oh boy, so exciting. And I have no skin in the game. I'm not from either country. I was, I was cheering for France, but thrilled for Argentina. Okay, moving on. The first NHL games ever played were today in history, and that is back in 1917. There was only four teams, of course, all in Canada, and we know where the expansion has gone. And also, curiously today, Wayne Gretzky, the great one, became the youngest player and the fastest player to record 1,000 points. That was 1984. It only took him 424 games. He was 23 years old. 1,000 points on the board. And a little bit more local on the sports note. Someone tell me where Lucas Wiseman is from, particularly. He's from this province, and he has just come back from Auckland, New Zealand, where we've had some great success on the sporting front in the recent past. Of course, Team Canada, the Men's World Softball Championships, finished second. So Lucas Wiseman, he won a gold at the uh, 2022 IPF Classic and equipped Commonwealth Powerlifting and Bench Press Championships in Auckland, New Zealand. That's his second gold medal on the international stage. This is last year in the juniors. He won a gold medal back in the... Last year, in Panama, he also won the North American Powerlifting Championships as a junior. Way to go, Lucas Wiseman. He's only been competing in the sports in 2018, and he's a champion. He's a gold medal winner. So where specifically is Lucas from? If you know, just zip me off a quick note. So then I know. All right, this has been spoken of for quite a long time, and it's about for the province to be able to adjust, or pardon me, Eastern Health in particular, to be able to make some adjustments to provide hip and knee replacements and is in form of an outpatient service. So it used to be, of course, you were admitted to hospital to lead you on your road to recovery, but now they've begun doing this. So it goes on to say some of the moves they've made to accommodate this shift. I'm not so sure I really understand most of it, but if it's going to help deal with the backlog, it will be a very good thing. There's a couple of people that have contacted me leading up to this. Now, I guess the first uh, surgeries have been completed. They were on the list. One got to get a hip, one got to get a knee, and they were a little bit worried about this fast-tracking, this rush to get in under the knife and out the door. So if it can done, if it can be done properly and effectively and safely, then fair ball, but it's now ongoing. Let me float this one out there. I saw someone on Twitter put it out uh, for people's consideration and, of course, to provoke any feedback. There's a healthcare worker shortage across the country, and some of the programs are quite extensive. If you, work in, if you want to work in an ICU and or you want to be an MD, we all know that it takes a while to fill some of the gaps if we're talking about domestic students or whoever. This person suggested, how about in an effort to recruit more people into being a healthcare worker, given some of the concerns that they hear and see in the news, the work-life balance, the burnout, the stress, the relationship with the health authority, and on and on it goes, and maybe even some financial concerns. This person said, how about this? Free tuition if you want to enter into a program to be a healthcare worker. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. You know, Mun's new focus on expanding the course offerings include a law school. Most people I know who are lawyers think there's probably no need for it. There is certainly a need to accommodate people who want to work in the innovation sector and or, yes, healthcare, but they're floating free tuition. I've always kind of balked at free tuition, but I don't know. What do you think? And then we kind of leave paramedics out of the conversation far too often when we talk about healthcare workers. But, of course, as first responders, their role critical. There's a group of paramedics that are poised for potential job action in the province. We know there's certain 
possibly more remote parts of the province where they're having to devil of a time trying to get a paramedic. So they're trying to do something to incentivize paramedics to come or to stay. So a one-year 2% bonus for full-time employees, an additional 2% added during the second year, a commitment bonus of $2,000 to be floated in exchange for a return in service agreement. You know, I don't even know why or how we leave the paramedics out of the conversation as frequently as we do, but there's parts of the province where they've lost their ambulance service, and it might be six-hour round trips. You know, the one ambulance that is in town, they're taking a patient to a, a, a hospital or a clinic or an emergency room that's as much as three hours away, and so it's minimum a six-hour turnaround. So if you're in the paramedic, if you are a paramedic or an ambulance operator, and if you're one of those represented by the group that are poised for job action, we're happy to have you on. And so this, hopefully this is a understandable link. So given the three transport trucks that we saw in a highway accident out by Berkshire Narrows, the truck drivers say poor road conditions led to that accident. So they're calling on the government, and this happens every winter, for 24-hour, seven days a week, snow clearing and ice control services. So the way we currently have a structure here in the province, and this is according to the department's own website, the winter road clearing schedule runs from mid-November to early April. Maintenance crews report for work between 4.30 and 5 a.m., five days a week. They work an eight-hour shift unless weather conditions dictate they work additional hours. Snow plows are dispatched until 9.30 p.m., but if the snow continues, they don't operate from 11 p.m. to 5 the next morning. Here's where it gets a little bit confusing and a bit of a contradiction. So the minister currently responsible for transportation and infrastructure is Elvis Loveless. He notes that the weather patterns are changing, but this is one of the quotes which kind of flies in the face a little bit. The plow operators will be there to assess and assist when an emergency arises. Okay, so if an ambulance is dispatched and we need some snow clearing to get to the patient and or to get them safely to the closest hospital, what happens when we don't do appropriate road work, snow clearing, ice control between 11 p.m. and 5 p.m. and the emergency rises because of that? Because of the road conditions, all of a sudden there's a serious accident where we have to put, send out the first responders, volunteer firefighters, paramedics, whatever the case may be. This happens every year. The call is now being loud and clear about 24 hours, seven days a week of snow clearing, ice control, regardless of the hour on the clock. We all know the province has got to try to trim the fat, but when it jeopardizes public safety, that's probably not a good place to start, right? Not probably. It's obviously not a good place to start. But if you're one of those folks living, because, look, not everyone works the so-called traditional schedule, 8 to 4.30, Monday to Friday. People have lots of reasons as to why they might be on the province's highways and byways between 11 p.m. and 5 p.m. And if the weather and the ice makes it unsafe, it sort of doesn't make a lot of sense when the province says, well, we will assist with snow clearing if there is an emergency, but the emergency might be caused by the lack of snow clearing. So the truckers who were involved in that one incident out by Birchie Narrows, which clogged up travel for hours on end, and of course, just luckily, no one was seriously injured in it, but that call has now been renewed. No surprise there, having sat in the seat for a number of years. That's exactly what we talk about this time of year. Sticking with transportation for a minute, surprisingly, Metrobus ridership is way up. 
24% more riders in October this year than the same month in 2019. That's a real whopping increase. Apparently, the same can be said for November. Now, that doesn't necessarily translate into more revenue, because remember, back in 2020, the province uh, introduced a program where people got a free Metro bus pass. Those were folks who were receiving income support and seniors who received the guaranteed income supplement. So add that, add, say, newcomers, add that to the list where people are struggling to be able to afford gasoline. So we're seeing an uptick in numbers at Metrobus. In the most recent St. John's budget, they were talking about adding more buses to the plan. So two extra buses on Route 2, I don't know which one that is, and one extra bus on Route 10 on evenings and weekends. And I guess the ridership is dictating that that's probably a very prudent spend, but ridership on Metrobus way up. I floated this out there a few times, and it's been told to me that it's impossible. But, you know, it's one thing for public transportation to be involved in this region. And I think there's some in Cornerbrook. Is there a way to have public transportation in other more rural parts of the province? Whether it be in the form of a 15-passenger van or what have you. With rates commensurate with riding on Metrobus for people to be able to get to do their shopping or to go to a medical appointment, or for whatever reason, to go visit their buddy. Is there a way we can kind of finagle that? Because we all know, you think about going for a Sunday drive? No, sir. Can't do it. Why? Can't afford it. So the public transportation conversation is complex when we talk about less densely populated rural regions, but if you have some ideas, we'd love to have you on the program. And, of course, let's talk a little bit of food, as I'm apt to do. Right off the bat, I want to say congratulations and thank you to our friends and our colleagues at CBC. They had a food drive last week, uh, last week on Friday, and they've raised uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $150,000 for their Feed NL campaign. That's going to go to the Community Food Sharing Association. So good work to the folks at the SEAB and also just a smaller group. And if you want to tell us about a uh, support drive, food, toy, or otherwise, we're happy to take it on. And good morning and congratulations to the folks behind the Avalon Celtics U13 hockey team. They collected over 3,000 pounds of fresh vegetables. That's also going to the Commute Food Sharing Association. So bravo to all involved on that front. And we've been talking about, you know, the province back in 2017 saying they were going to do whatever it takes to double food production in the province. Now they're offering a report on that front. So here we go. Apparently, we are farming uh, 1,200 acres, that's hectares, that's up from 590 back in 2016, resulting in traditional crops like potatoes, turnip, carrots, and strawberries just about doubled. They go on to say that the province's agricultural sector is 100% self-sufficient in terms of fluid milk, chicken, and eggs. Self-sufficiency in beef and sheep production has also more than doubled since 2016. Trying to encourage more young people to get into farming, which is very, very difficult and some enormous upfront cost, but I suppose that's good news. You know, also for the farmers, exporting little to none, and the competition is extremely tough to get your product to market, especially on the big chain grocery store chain shelves. You know, some smaller market opportunities is one thing, but in particular, if you are a current farmer, whether you have a hydroponic operation or you're the fifth generation farmer uh, producing whatever it is from root vegetables or into beef or sheep or anything under the sun, strawberries or cranberries, Let's talk about the industry because that's if we have some momentum, it'd be good to build on said momentum. All right. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave, to kick off a Monday? This story here, again, is not new, and every now and then it will pop up. And this is the numbers of people, women and men, who need to stay in for-profit 
emergency shelters. Now, the department responsible for Newfoundland and Labrador housing, they can't put you in an emergency shelter like, for instance, Iris Kirby House, but they can send you to the, one of these for-profits. Been lots of conversation about the state of the home, the safety therein, and whether or not, to, for instance, women who are unable to get a spot at Iris Kirby House because they're over capacity, they're saying they're being approached for sex and that there's no lock in the bathroom door and people are walking in the room and some of the dirty conditions they say they're living in. This problem can only be getting worse considering the fact places like Iris Kirby are over capacity. And we shouldn't necessarily go straight to money, but let's incorporate money into the conversation. So it caused the problems huge sums of money for these for profits. And profit is a tricky word when we get into this particular sector. If it costs hundreds of dollars a night for the province to accommodate someone who needs this mercy shelter, and they're very vulnerable, they have complex needs, they're feeling unsafe, how much does that add up to over the course of the year? And how can we better spend that money to provide this type of service? So the perfect storm, once again, is upon us. The convergence of overcapacity at the shelter and the conditions in the for-profit sector. So let's see the math, and I've seen it over the years, well into the seven figures. What could be done to make that a better setup, a better system, safer? dealing with the complex needs. And then there's some complaints about food. Here's one of the reports, uh, because at the for-profit, given the money the province spends, they have to provide the food. One resident at a St. John's home says they were given a microwave dinner, a pizza pop, a pack of gummy candy, a Pop-Tart, and a two-liter of pop for the entire day. Doesn't necessarily sound like a great diet. So there's about 140 to 160 shelter beds in this area of the province, and that number comes from End Homelessness St. John's. 226 people experiencing homelessness at the latest count in October, and Mercy Shelter Beds filling up. Just amazing stuff. All right, so we're set, we're bracing for what the province is calling a major innovation announcement this afternoon. Talking about transforming the sector. Well, we can only hope it's about a billion dollar industry. We'll talk about the monies that come from oil and fishery and all the rest of it, but the innovation and the opportunities it presents long term for this province and its youth is really good. So hopefully major, quote unquote, is exactly what we hear announced later today. All right, and happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate. Began yesterday, the eight-day celebration. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Oh, just popped my head. On top of Lucas Wiseman and his powerlifting gold medal, way to go to Chris Weeks. We talked about Chris Weeks some while back where he set a Canadian record. He just won a bronze medal at the 50 fly, the fly at uh, the Ontario Junior International this past weekend. Chris Weeks is a swimmer with the Mount Pearl Marlins. All right, let's go take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jean. You're on the air. Hi, good morning. Uh, I'm calling from a C. Okay. Uh, I'm calling concerning our our uh, hospital there in Baybrook, like where it's... Uh, you know, we have to travel to Springdale or Grand Falls on weekends and probably sometimes during the week with no doctor, like, you know. And last Thursday, I got sick and and I called to Baylor. No, no doctor. Uh, you're going to have to go to Grand Falls or go to Springdale if there's, if there's a doctor, you know, that can take you. Apparently, I went to Springdale. I stayed in the, in the, in the waiting room up there for... Uh, well, I was there from 10 o'clock in the morning. I finally seen the doctor at 4 o'clock in the evening. And, you know, like, we're senior people, right? And not only that, it don't matter. 
but it's it's also because we got a beautiful hospital up there in Bayver. Not a, we're not blaming the doctor. We got a wonderful doctor, one doctor, but he can't do it all. You know, of course it's not. Impossible. I mean, the trick is going to be trying to put together packages that make it attractive to work in smaller, remote communities, which is probably becoming more difficult than ever before. Now, some of the solution to that would quite likely be if there's a young person currently living in the area who has their sights set on a, a medical career, medical professional career, you know, making sure that we open up seats for people from smaller pockets of the province so they're much more likely to go work there than someone, for instance, who's from St. John's or is from Toronto or is from England yeah. or something. So there's yeah. there's a lot to this, but it's going to be tricky to recruit doctors in particular, I would suggest, and or nurse practitioners to smaller parts of the province. Yeah, we got beautiful. I mean, like I said, we got, the, the, the nurses are wonderful, like you're not down in anybody in that matter. Yep. But I'm just thinking, I mean, why don't the government try to figure out, well, at least if we could get a, a doctor, a, you know, to fill in when they want the other, when the guy is gone, like, you know, someone to come here for a few days or whatever like you know you and this is costly you got to go you got to go to grand falls you got to go to spring yeah and you're only getting that little bit of money so what are you going to do you know right i do know groceries come first or do we do you 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 lie down and die and wait you know or wait for some help from somebody you know that's the thing that's why we got to complain if we don't complain well it's, it's not much point for our hospital to be there well, if bricks and mortars are in place, but there aren't any healthcare professionals inside, then it's just a building. It's not healthcare. Exactly, exactly. That's true enough. Because it's, it's sad. Because, like I said, I, I I've seen so many pe- sick people just struggling. You know, trying to get into the to the hospital and can't get there. And uh, and like as me for one, I mean, I don't drive, and I got to depend on somebody else to take me. And and you know, you got to pay your way. So. Whatever it is, it is. You know, that's, that's what I'm complaining about. And, and I'm complaining mostly, like I said, because we got such a beautiful hospital up here and we got nobody whatsoever fighting for this, this area. Nobody. Well, I'm glad you're chiming in on it this morning. And, you know, there's uh, some people don't take the opportunity to call like you did this morning. But I guarantee you there's not one part of the province that I don't hear from every single day talk about exactly this. They've got a clinic and they've got, you know, what used to be staffed up by a a crew of six is now two. And people who've had doctors in their community for decades on end and now don't have any. So these stories pile up quite quickly. Yes, I mean, you don't get on a run down a hospital. You don't run down a doctor. You just want help to see that these places are filled and we need somebody to intercede for us and get us moving because if not we're going to lose everything we got and probably relocate everybody that's in this small area to a bigger center that's the only chance i don't see anything else some people even think that's on purpose right um and i know where that thought comes from but I just, I will stick with it, and I think it's probably fairly accurate that to try to get someone to come to your community is going to be harder than ever before. The health, I agree, I agree, yes. Yeah, true. I mean, look, the doctors are in such high demand that mm-hmm. they really hold all the cards. They get yes. to be very picky and choosy about where they want to work, whether it be in this province or anywhere else in the country. So, right. again, the country is becoming much more urbanized, for better or worse. Yes, and so, consequently, right. smaller communities are going to struggle. And 
you know, whether yeah. whether it's on purpose or not, I'll leave it at that. But, you know, just think about it. How many stories have we seen where someone has left their smaller home and a smaller community where they have yeah. been for yeah. generations to move closer to just health care? It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, we build up our homes. We got beautiful, a beautiful town. We got uh, what the money that we got is spent in 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 building our homes and and things like that. You know, and what do you do? Like uh, you just can't out and go. You don't have the money because the thing is, the money that you have is invested in what you got. That's right. Yep. So, like you know, what do you do? So, I mean, it's pretty to me. It's time for somebody to get off the pot because. Like, we got nobody, that, uh, the mayor's there don't get on the line, which they should. We got our MHA, which should be interceding a lot more for us. We got nobody. We're standing alone in this area. Well, Gene, thanks for uh, taking up the charge here this morning. It's good to have you on the program. Stay in touch. I uh, will. Thank you so much. And you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Same to you and yours, Gene. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go to line number two. William, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. How are you? Uh, fantastic, I suppose. How about you? I do have a call. Uh, not too bad. A little bit nervous. First time calling. Um, um, my issue here this morning, Patty, is uh, I'm on the West Coast here. Uh, Friday evening, I left uh, Pasadena area to go to Springdale area. I got outside of Deer Lake. I hit a pothole on the highway doing less than 100 kilometers an hour. Um, my front rim, my back rim, my muffler, everything is destroyed. I had to call a friend to come. My, obviously, your car only has one spare tire. Um, thank you to everybody who did stop and ask for help. Um, I had to call a friend to come from Springdale to bring a second spare tire to get me out of this jam. I phoned Transportation and Works this morning, and I'm, I'm frustrated, but I, I'm speaking to him like I'm speaking to you now. And maybe a little more frustration, no cursing, no vulgarity. Mm-hmm. I got hung up on twice, just trying to figure out which route, how do I get, go about get my car fixed. And so even if you look for where, where to go, no one's going to accommodate you with any cost coverage, are they? Or how do I, exactly, Patty, I just put four new winter tires on it. Like, I'm a single father, uh, like everybody else on the island. We work paycheck to paycheck. And... I'm here in, in my driveway. I snow clear. I don't even know how I would get to where I had to go to work if I had to work this morning because I got two spare tires on my car and a muffler that's hanging on by a bunch of bungee cords because of a pothole on the highway. I was not off-roading. Where exactly was this particular pothole, uh, sir? This gentleman knows exactly where it was who I called for transportation. Because when I explained it to him, he knew I wasn't exactly sure. And um, it's a common spot. One of the people that did pull over to help me, it happened to him at 3 o'clock in the morning, two days before. Um, just between Birchy Narrows, I believe it is, Patty. I'm not familiar with outside of Deer Lake area. Okay. But it's not 15 minutes outside of Deer Lake between Birchy Narrows and uh, I would believe it will be the... The truck pull off. 
there's a rest stop there somewhere. Yes, you know, we, we talk about the potholes and or the rotting or what have you about public safety because hitting that pothole or making a quick maneuver to uh, dodge the pothole can really put you at risk. And then, of course, it does add up to some financial repercussions because what do you estimate is the damage you suffered by hitting this one pothole? Honestly, Patty, I have no idea. Like, I didn't, it was that night when it happened. I didn't know my muffler was hanging until the next morning. Um, like I said, I'm hoping my tires are still good. I'm hoping it's just the rims. So that's two rims and a muffler system. So, and the gentleman that I spoke to, like I said, he hung, I don't he hung up on me. So this is why nobody gets anything done. They don't want to deal with. He knows where the spot is. He told me the exact spot. Yeah, it's not the first time I heard about it. No, and here I am now Monday morning in limbo. We hear these stories in particular, I hear them mostly about city streets because yeah. for the longest while, I mean, you don't need to be out and about all day every day to know that there's some notorious spots where regardless of what they do, it's soft underneath or there was some poor uh, prep work done with the bed that they laid the asphalt on that every yeah. time I drive by, there's the damn pothole. I'll see them yeah. go up and try to fix it, do something about it in the morning, see it the next morning and it's open up again. So It's, it's from the bottom up. I un like I work in construction for 22 years I've done asphalt for I understand but this is our Trans-Canada Highway yep. like you can't be doing 100 kilometers an hour like like I said I wasn't even doing the 100 because of the conditions like and if you hit it bad enough and you jeopardize your suspension you could find yourself in oncoming traffic in a heartbeat and again I, I don't even know it up to the extent of damage yet because it's not even in the garage yet but I just want to know who do I turn to or who can I contact? And I got nowhere with it. I got hung up on. Yeah, they're only no matter who you call, they're only going to put you on to the winter maintenance uh, crew for whatever particular region. And there's phone numbers for specific regions, whether it be Avalon, Eastern, Central, Western, or Labrador. And other than that, they're going to continually to uh, just push you right back to the same people you already spoke to and got hung up on twice. Yeah. So who did you call? Uh, I called Deer Lake Transportation Works. Uh, I was told I wasn't allowed to say the gentleman's name online. Okay, no, that's okay, because, you know, and they should know better. I don't care if you're frustrated. Yeah. You're working for us. Take the complaint and have to just swallow it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I said, like, I, I'm not vulgar. I might be frustrated. But there, I, I'm, I've given you no reason to hang up on me. Well, there's a catch-all uh, Western Region number that you can also call if you want to try that, as opposed to just that one depot. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, I don't know which route to take. I'm like... Okay, I, I just, we'll take this number, because this will go yeah, to absolutely. the centralized dispatcher for Western, and that number is 635. Just one second there, Patty. No problem. Yep. 635. 635-4144. Uh, Thank you, Patty. No problem at all. Let me know what happens. I will. Have a good day. You too, sir. Merry Christmas bye. to you. Merry Christmas, bye. William. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's get to a break. When we come back, Ron is there talking about transition houses and the specific needs some people may have. And then Kevin, he's down in Petty Fort. He also wants to talk about the roads and what that means for school buses and ambulances. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Kevin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Great today. Thanks. How you doing? Eddie, I want to talk about a couple of things this morning. Okay. Uh, Saturday night, 
I had my ambulance come for my wife to take her to Bjorn Hospital. And I got to say they're wonderful people, wonderful people. I mean, he had a 40-minute, uh, when I called, it was a 40-minute ride from Bale Argent to Pitty Fort to pick up, pick up the patient. So at 40 minutes, he was here to the door. And they treated my wife with the highest respect before that ambulance and in the Bjorn Healthcare Centre. I called him 6 o'clock in the morning, and he answered. They said, Kevin, you can call anywhere. By the way, my wife is still in the hospital. <clears throat> but anyway, the driver said to me, he said, Kevin, where am I to? I said, by your in Pity Ford. He said, all I see coming out was the yellow line. And I, and I said, be careful going back. And I was just like a fella on a desert. I was waving up to my wife in the back of the ambulance going down the road away from me. But anyway. How is your wife? The wife is doing very good this morning. She's doing what I was talking to her. She's doing, but they're treating her with the highest respect that anybody can be treated. Good. I'm really glad to hear that much of the story. Yeah. Well, anyway, the other part of the story I got this morning. Our road is 18 kilometers long. The brush is growing out under the guardrails. Uh, moose on the road. The moose don't have to come out on the road, Paddy. All he got to do is stick his tongue out through the brush, and you run into him. I've, uh, counsel, I'm not here to criticize Jeff DeWire or any politician or anybody in the government, but I'm here to beg Jeff DeWire this morning to get something done on this road and get the brush cut before <clears throat> before someone gets serious ill, killed or, or injured. I got a little girl. I went down around the place yesterday, Friday, and the mother was stood up on the road. I said, where are you at? She said, I'm waiting for Emma to get off the bus. She got a 40-minute ride to Rush Hill School, which she picked up quarter to nine in the morning, and come home four o'clock in the evening. That little girl is on that bus alone with the driver. Now, I'm not asking for 18 kilometers of road to be brush cut, but come out and say, Kevin, show me where the brush wants to be cut and I will tr gladly show them where the brush has to be cut. I know that road. I'm traveling all my life since the road came here. And I mean, I'm saying to Mr. DeWar, please, Mr. DeWar, you know, we, we talked about this a year and a half and he's saying he's working on it. But I mean, working, we need this action done now. We need some brush cut on that road before someone gets killed. And I'll be calling into you and saying, oh, this fellow got killed. If I haul off on the side of the road, I'm not hauling off on the side of the road. I'm hauling off in the woods to let someone pass. Now, it's like John Hipper said, please, Mr. Dwyer, get something done. I'm not asking you. I'm not telling you. I'm begging you this morning. And by the way, I'm spokesman for Pity Forward and the Southeast Pipe. we got two communities. And we produce a lot of product going over that road. Sometimes we get six tractor trailers coming out in the summertime to take crap. But, Patty, I'm very frustrated. It's a year and a half I've been talking to Jeff. And, you know, working on it, and actually, I invite every lovers, I guess it's a transportation minister, I don't know. But I may get anybody, Chuck Fury or anybody, come, or, or Andrew Fury, or anybody to come out and sit down with me. And I tell them where it's to. I mean, by the way, I'm chairman of the Harbor Authority, and I'm chairman of the local service district, I'm chairman of the Fisherman's Committee, and I'm even on the church committee. So I'm the spokesman for Pity Fort and Southeast Point. I asked Southeast Point. They said, go ahead, Kevin, and you do it. Mr. Patty Boy, I tell you right now, 
it's a, it's dreadful. Let's say your wife going away in the back of an ambulance, and you didn't know if she was going to be killed or get to the hospital, which she got to the hospital safe. But I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Eighty. Well, it's so bad now. We got the beavers building houses on side the road. So you know, when you come to that, I mean, I can take care of the beavers. I can get boy to take care of them. But I can't take care of the brush myself. Four or five years ago, I had three women in there with a hand sauce on the brush off the road. But I can't do this. The politicians should get in work. I mean, I know, I'm not saying, I know Jeff DeVar got a lot of stuff on his plate. He's in the opposition. But I don't care where you are or what you are. You can get out this morning, today or the week, whenever, in a year and a half and say, come on, those people in this small community, they're, they're going to suffer. We're going to suffer. We're going to get killed. Someone might get killed. I hope not. But I am today frustrated, very, very frustrated. And, I mean, what can you do? I mean, I, I'm beating my head off the wall. I mean, I know. I know firsthand what's going on here. And, I mean, we got a lot of traffic coming over that road. And I know it's everywhere. I'm, on, I'm talking about this. And it's like I said before, I'm not asking for 18 kilometers of pavement to be done. I'm not asking that. I'm asking you to come out. Anybody, pits or anybody, come out and say, Kevin, show us where the road, where the bad spots are. Because there's mules on this road, and you can get killed besides mules. But the mules is on the road, and it's a big hazard, a very big hazard. I mean, luckily my wife got to the hospital. You know, she wasn't killed on the road in that ambulance, and then people, then paramedics come. But once again, Patty, I'm begging Jeff DeVar to do something first, and not only me, the Saudis, boys, and pity for it. Do something, Mr. DeVar. Do something. Go to whoever you got to go to. Get them to come and look at the road in Pittyford because it's deplorable, it's ridiculous, and it's no need. The brush is growing out under the guardrail. Yes. Growing out under the guardrail across the road. You're hitting the brush off, off your car when you're driving along. You got nowhere to get out. Kevin, but just I, one second. Are there big steep drop offs off the shoulder of the road, or is it fairly flat? Well, is no, well, it's enough to kill you. Yeah, no, I'm just curious because, look, for me, people talk about fences and all that stuff to protect the road and the motorists from moose. When the best shot we all have is, number one, control your speed. Number two, get a fighting chance to see it coming. And if the alders are grown out under the guardrails, then you won't see that moose until it jumps over that guardrail, and then it's too late. So I think the most effective thing to protect us out there. And a couple of summers ago, it really felt like the government had upped their game with clearing the alders back from the shoulder of the road. But if you're, as you point out or you describe it, on that 18-kilometer stretch, that's nowhere near good enough. So hopefully someone's listening to you. I know Mr. Dwyer can only do so much as an opposition member. So this falls right back to the minister responsible for transportation and infrastructure. That will be Elvis Loveless at this moment in time. Uh, maybe if he and his office are listening this morning, someone who works closer to your region can have a look and to make sure that if something can be done before we get too nasty and dirty in the winter here, cut back some of the Right. Yeah, I, I'm a I agree with you 100%. I know Mr. DeWire is in the opposition. He can't get much done. I know that. But I know, like Evan Loveless this morning, if he's listening, Mr. Loveless, come out or send somebody out, like you said, Patty, and say to me, show me where the bad spots are in that road. We cannot see an oncoming car coming. The car can't be seen coming where the brushes go out around the road. You know, Patty, but anyway, Patty, I thank you for taking this. And I really appreciate it. And once again, I'm saying the Bjorn Healthcare Center is was treated us with the most respect and the most uh, cooperation that anybody could ask for. 
Well, I'm glad to hear that. Kevin, uh, wish your wife well for me, a speedy and full recovery, and Merry Christmas to you both and yeah, your family. Okay, thank you. Merry Christmas, Daddy. Take good care. Okay, Kevin, bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, people can talk about fences and, you know, whether it be driving for the uh, road conditions as they present themselves and the difference between how we drive in the daytime and the dark. Also, for me, and, uh, you know, some people have their own opinions on fair enough, getting a chance to see the moose coming because we've got the alders cut back way from the shoulder of the road at least gives you a chance. But if they are as overgrown as Kevin describes, well, then, of course, that chance is gone. Uh, let's go to line number two. We'll get an update. I imagine that's what's coming. From this past weekend's toy drive that took place over in the parking lot at the Kent's Pond Fire Station with one of the organizers, Sheila Guy Murphy. Good morning, Sheila. You're on the air. Oh, thank you, Patty, for taking time for my call. Patty, what a success yesterday. Terrific. Oh, it it was like a big party over there. Uh, so many firefighters with their with their uh, families. So many members of the uh, Salvation Army. Uh, uh, Major Locke greeting everybody and thanking everybody as they came by. We had the the Mount Pearl Blades, the junior hockey team, all showed up with toys they had collected. It was an incredible day. Andrea Rhinelander of Tim Hortons, she kicked off this event again this year by dropping off a check for the Salvation Army, toys for the, uh, for the young people, and uh, coffee for the, for the firefighters, which really helped yesterday. It was wet and rainy. So it was just an incredible day. We, there was a significant amount of uh, cash given. Some people drove in with, uh, and I don't know if they want their names mentioned, drove in with uh, checks. Uh, for for the for the Salvation Army, and uh, collected once again, <clears throat> drum roll, twelve hundred toys. Oh wow, <laughs> that's just a massive under, number. Just under twelve hundred toys, Patty. Well, that's absolutely terrific. Uh, uh, and yesterday, uh, Patty, they came. People that have been coming to this event for years. Uh, Courtney Clark Pomeroy and myself, the other organizer, we were just amazed at the. The difference in like people who had been coming for 30 years to the event and brand new young people and young families coming with children in car seats and so forth. It was uh, it was just a tremendous day. And um, Salvation Army uh, Major Locke said, uh, if I was talking to anyone, i.e. you, to make sure that I shouted out a big thank you to everybody that came through there from the Salvation Army, what it means to their toy collection and the support that that will give right across this province, Labrador, Newfoundland, so many people will have... It's overwhelming, Patty, how wonderful it is. Well, you know, especially when you talk about what people are experiencing and the cost of everything, and it's just the list goes on and on. But I'm not surprised any longer. I used to be surprised when we would do whether it be a radiothon or a food drive or something, yeah. and I'd be thinking, you know, I'm expecting X, but then I get X times 2 or X times 10. And yeah. I'm not surprised anymore because there's lots of good people out there, and if they're able to help, they always do. They do. It's just terrific. It is, it, and it never ceases to amaze me. And you do go into these events thinking, uh, well, Courtney and I were thinking, you know, if we get 100 gifts, that's 100 young people we can uh, help out through the Salvation Army. The partnership with, you know, with VOC and the Salvation Army and the uh, St. John's Firefighters Association, uh, that association has done wonderful stuff in the last number of years. 
and that has worked so well. And you keep thinking, oh, well, maybe this is the year that it's going to hit the bottom. Well, it hit the bottom for a lot of people, but it brought an awful lot of people up to the top to help out. Really pleased with the successes, and I, th- I, I thank you, and I appreciate the update, Sheila. Keep up the good work. Thank you, and very happy Christmas to you and to everyone over there. And to you and yours. Thanks, Sheila. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Wrong button. <laughs> Sheila Guy Murphy with the update from this past weekend's toy drive over at the Fire Hall, Kent's Pond. Okay, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we are going to talk about the price of food and maybe how that juxtaposes with the promise reporting that we have double food production in a couple of key areas. And then we're going to talk about whatever's on your mind with you. Get in the queue. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Exploits. Uh, he's the critic for Forestry and Agriculture. That's Pleeman Forsey. Good morning, Pleeman. You're on the air. Good morning, Petty. Morning to you. Petty, uh, first of all, I'd, I'd certainly like to start off with a with a big thank you, of course, and, and that's to Marathon Gold here in Central Newfoundland, uh, uh, Marathon Gold and their contractors. On Friday, of course, they made a donation to the uh, Grand Falls Windsor Food, uh, Grand Falls Windsor Bishop Falls Food Bank for uh, amount of uh, thirty-one thousand dollars. And uh, I'd certainly say hats off to those those people for for doing that, Patty. Especially when we hear of the food banks, you know, the increase in the food banks at this time of year. So it's it, good on them. Bravo. It is. But Patty, uh, that brings that leads me into I guess uh, my next hobby is the uh, is food self sufficiency. You know, in a in a news release, the minister touts that the province is self sufficient in milk, chicken, eggs. You know, which is true and it's good. But we've been we've been in that position for years. What what needs attention now are the root crops, and the minister tells us that the there has been an increase in in root crops in in in, in some of that. So which is also good to hear. But, Patty, I've been talking to farmers this year in particular that with the high cost of operations, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, fuels, uh, feeds and everything going up, that uh, they're finding it very, very uh, tough to do business this year. And also new entrants coming into the uh, to the system, uh, you know, they've... Uh, they see some of them don't see see themselves getting past the next two years. So it's uh, it's kind of things that we need to put in initiatives for those new farmers, and and we need to be uh, be putting more into our experienced farmers, of course, because they they have the know how, they have the experience to uh, to increase our crop. Yeah, I mean the fact, that, and I think you're right. You know, 100% self-sufficient in chicken and eggs and milk. That's all fine and dandy, but that's nothing new. But when the uh, the department says they've doubled to 1,200 acres from 500. And 90 potatoes, turnips, carrots, strawberries. Also good news, but a couple of big questions pop up for me is where are they being sold, number one? And if all of this has been achieved since 2016, 2017, then how come we don't see a bigger presence of local product on the shelves? Or are they all just having to turn to, you know, stand on the highway or local farmer's market or whatnot? Because I haven't seen a big increase in local product at the grocery store. No, and that is that is a good point, Patty. We're all seeing, you know, I see it as well, you know, in our, in our local groceries, grocers here, and uh, you know, for for farmers to get into the markets here, to get into where they need to sell those, they're they're having uh, they're having a hard time, and uh, government needs to probably streamline where they can sell it to. But how does that work, you know? Because, for instance, let's just take Loblaws. 
how can anybody at the government level tell them where they can buy their product? Because we get into some really, not only tricky, but potentially very risky areas where we're trying to dictate what privately owned companies should be doing. We can regulate all kinds of stuff, but tell them you need just to use round number. 10% of your shelf space has to go to local products. Is that even something governments should get even close to, let alone involved in? Well, it's, it's something that we could uh, certainly take a look at. I'd like to see more of our products on the shelf, and I know the farmers around here would certainly uh, certainly love to uh, see our see our products products on the shelf. So uh, you know, but uh, but we need to get it there. We need to get it grown, and we need to we need to put, put initiatives in there for for farmers, especially experienced farmers now today. And and again, some of our initiatives, some of the uh, farmers coming into coming into the business, of course, like I said, it's uh, it's it's a a, cha- a challenge for those people. I, I've talked to. Uh, some young farmers that uh, you know uh, that uh, they need more land to get uh, to get cleared, and certainly, well, Patty, you know how it goes for Crown Lands to uh, to to receive land to get uh, for agriculture and and get up and running on that because uh, Crown Lands is a is an experience in itself. Because by the time they get to get the land, get it operating, uh, you know they're they're probably gone. Yeah, I mean, it takes a while to prepare land for any agricultural endeavor. You know, some of the upfront cost stuff, that's where government can help. You know, with the timeliness for providing land or, you know, approving one project or another, fair enough. But it's that upfront cost that scares away a lot of young farmers because we do know it's a traditional industry, which can be very difficult, time-consuming and arduous and physical. So how that... How that translates to government intervention, I'm not 100% sure. But I read a news story last week about the fact that, you know, at the same time we're told that we've done all, made all this headway, but we've also been told that since 2001 we've gone from 650-odd farms to 390-odd farms, and we've, uh, we've farmed 50.7% less acreage. So how does one jive with the other? I've been having a hard time squaring that circle, as I like to say. So then the, in that exact same news story, uh, Sylvain Charlebois, professor at Dal- Housing, saying, you know, new modernized techniques like preci- precision farming to help carefully measure the input cost, whether it be fu- fuel, feed, fertilizer, and what have you. I'm not really sure what that means or how it works, so I'm trying to look around to see if there's a farmer can help explain it to me. But someone's got to help me understand this. Doubling production from 590 to 1,200 hectares, and yet we've lost 50 po- almost 51% of the acreage farm since 2001. I just don't know how they both work together or coexist. Yeah, it seems to uh, interfere with each other. There, no doubt. I mean, see, when stats cans telling us that they're we're losing 50% of our farmland, and and we also got increases too. But uh, so anyway, but we need to we need to be able to acquire more farmland, Patty. You know, regards to new entrants coming in, it depends on the type of farmland that's being issued. You know, how hard is that to be actually uh, up and running? You know, how, how much uh, how much clearing have you got to do, and how how how, how productive is that uh, is that piece of farmland? So that uh, all those got to work together. Yeah, and I don't know if you know, but does anybody have any idea what's going on with that canopy growth facility? Because it's things like that. You know, we talk about modernized approach to farming, precision farming and what have you, but hydroponics are well understood. I mean, there's all kinds of hydro, uh, hydroponic projects going on already in the province, and if we sprinkled around, that's where government can make a difference, I think, between the municipalities and the provincial government, is to try to have a better understanding of homesteading, backyard farming, greenhouses, hydroponics, and if we have something like canopy, it's 
it's a year-round potential operation. Let's see what can be done there. It creates a few jobs, puts more local product, potentially at the St. John's Farmer's Market, maybe on the shelves at Coleman's or Bid Goods or whatever the case may be. So there are some baby steps we can take, and I think there's a couple of big leaps we can also throw into the mix. Yes, it is, Patty, and I'd like to see all those initiatives taken and, uh, and uh, you know, get our products on our shelves and uh, more food food production in our area, in, in our province, and, uh, you know, uh, let's, let, you know, make things moving that uh, makes food for, uh, the food self-sufficiency, you know, be worthwhile. Yeah, we can definitely do more, but I guess we're going to have to have the minister on to help us understand the Stats Canada numbers versus the provincial government's news release. How did we lose 50.7% of farmland hectares, hectares or acreage being farmed? But all of a sudden, we've doubled. So I don't quite really necessarily understand that. But I guess the disparity between 2001 and 2016, that's where the answer lies. But certainly more has to be done because that doubling doesn't bring us anywhere close to what we were doing in 2001. Exactly, Patty. Appreciate uh, the time. Uh, yeah, Patty, just one thing. I'd just sure. like to say uh, Merry Christmas to you and yours, uh, staff at BOCM, certainly, and all your listeners, and have a great Christmas. Appreciate your time. Merry Christmas to you and yours as well, Pleeman. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Pleeman Forsey. He's the PC member for Exploits. All right, let's keep going. Line number two. Alan, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Doing okay. How you doing? Well, I got a bit of a problem, my friend. What's going on? Um, met this... This is back in September. Burns out to be a bit of a stalker. And anyway, uh, multiple texts, multiple phone calls, attacked me on Facebook all the time. <clears throat> and basically, something happened at the airport back in June. And I'm not going to say no names, but apparently something happened between her current bar friend. Her, I, I guess, can I say his first name? Okay. Okay, anyway, his first name is Craig. Um, I won't say no other names. Um, um, if anybody's out there knows who I'm talking about um, or knows him, can you, I'll leave my number off here to get hold of me because like, this girl just got me drove freaking crazy, right? And uh, she was talk- I heard her on the phone the way she's getting on with me right now, so I just sunk on a leaked her, and I'd love to hear from this person. So who are we looking for, the woman or the fella? No, no, the gentleman. Uh, so if something happens at the airport, uh, the girl that was with him, she got arrested. That's one I meant. She got arrested at the airport and somewhere around the middle part of June there about so a lot of her. Anyway, one thing led to another. I met her afterwards and it turns out she's uh, well, let's put this way. I should have kept on walking. And I'd love I'd love to be able to hear from this guy, right? Uh, okay, so uh, I'm sure he'll be able to connect the dots. Uh, so yeah. Craig, if you are listening this morning, Alan would like to yep. speak with you. So she was charged with what? I don't know because I don't believe work comes out of her mouth. Okay. She uh, said she said she she never done nothing, but well, you know, that remains to be seen. I'll like to talk to him to find out exactly what happened because like she got me going for hell, man. I just got like 147 texts in like four days. It's unbelievable. Can you just block her number? Oh yeah, I got that. Oh, that's all blocked. And now she's a. She's contacted all my Facebook friends. Getting on Facebook and attack me that way. Now, all I right. I'm going down to see if you can get her charged, but uh, I'm going to leave your number with, with uh, I guess, watch out there in the background. Craig or anybody knows Craig to pass that number line to me. Yeah, well, so we have the number. If anyone calls us, we will share your contact. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because this is ridiculous, but honestly, I don't know. She's not supposed to be on Facebook. She's not supposed to be on social media, but anyway, she's on there anyway. Well, and, uh, hopefully, you can get to the bottom of it. Well, yeah, it's getting ridiculous now. I mean, it's just like, seriously, unreal. There's like 20, I think it was like 35 phone calls from Friday till yesterday evening alone. Crazy. Yikes. Well, hopefully you can connect with Craig and hopefully the... uh 
the amount and the frequency of contact, hopefully that wanes ASAP. Appreciate the time, Alan. Oh, Dave yeah, has yeah. your number. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Very Merry Christmas, Patty. You too, buddy. Thank you very much. Too. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Ooh, yeah. All right, you know, I mean, we did talk about the for-profit shelters. It's not in an effort to say that this is all a one-sided issue where it's it's all the operators because I'm sure some of their clientele are not exactly respecting the, the home either and beating the place up. So, you know, there's a combination of both. The reason I bring it up is that there's got to be a better way. Not to say that, you know, it's all this guy's fault or that person's fault or what have you because that's not the intention. The intention is to deal with uh, better solutions, better approaches that have better outcomes because at this point it's not really working and so that was based on you know some of the issues surrounding the folks at iris kirby house are just over capacity and can't take anyone else in and please do turn to them if you need help they have other support services that might be able to help you out but this one is also a good story it comes from labrador i want to say good morning to crystal alexander and if she's listening we'd like for her to call the show this morning crystal gets some support from a couple of different companies let's see here uh, mission kitty thrift shop and scott pin art this is to help single dads and low-income families, their fathers, for this holiday season. So they've got some 14 dads who are signed up to receive a free gift bag. So bravo, Crystal, because, you know, I guess the question that was posed that provoked this move made by uh, Miss Alexander is they were saying, are there something similar to the Sponsor Mom program, you know, which is something that goes on in Labrador and other parts of the province? They couldn't find anywhere, so she created it, Gifts for Dads. So good for you, Crystal. And that's a fun story, or it's a nice positive story to talk about. About, or we can talk about whatever you want to talk about right after this break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Polly. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. I got a bit of cold, but anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, this Newfoundland it has to be cold, you know. Yep. You know, Polly, what I want to talk about is a, it's a World Cup. Now, I'm not a soccer enthusiast, okay? I never knew, I never took part in playing soccer. The only thing I know about soccer is that one team gets at one end of the field and try to slug the ball to another end. Uh, and, and I just didn't understand it. I did watch some of the World Cup, uh, and the commentators were good. I learned that passing is very important and stuff like that. And yesterday, game, uh, people on television said that it was one of the best games ever. Well, probably it was. I, I fell asleep for most of it. But, you know, they could learn a lot from the National Hockey League. At the, end of, at the end of the game yesterday, they said, we're going to present the trophy. Well, it took an hour about. They, uh, not, not quite, but there was some sort of hold-up, yeah. Yeah, well, oh, that was it. Wasn't it? I thought it was part of what they were doing. You you take the National Hockey League. Now, Chicago's only won the Cup twice. I'm 72, 72 years old. They've only won it twice in my lifetime. But they do it right. They bring out the Con Smite, they give it. They bring out the uh, Stanley Cup, they give it, and, and the team skates around. I know what they were doing yesterday. And that's the ugliest-looking trophy I ever saw in my life. Really? Oh, I think and it's it's pretty small for how mighty and how important a trophy it is when we talk about global sports. But it is small, but it is beautiful, in my opinion. But, of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, well, Don Sherry always said the, the, um, the Stanley Cup was the nicest-looking trophy in sport. And I, I agree with him on that yeah, one. Yeah, me too. And, and that. 
but I did learn a lot from the from the game itself. Uh, these guys pass well and all that, and that's all I wanted to say. At the end of the game, they should just give out the trophy and. That's it. Yeah, there's a bit of pomp and circumstance. Plus, they give out the golden boot for the top scorer, the golden <laughs> ball, uh, and the golden glove for the top goaltender. So That's right. there's a bit of stuff that goes into it. And, you know, slogging the ball around used to be pretty much how we played in this province, and we've really That's improved right. our soccer game. But the precision with which they can move that ball around is mind-blowing. If anyone's ever played soccer in their life, to see a ball coming across the pitch from 50, 60 yards, and they can take it down and not lose, you know, five inches away from their toe is just remarkable talent well of course many uh, not many but uh, many football teams I mean American football teams go out and hire uh, and hire soccer players to become their place kickers you know yeah, there's been some of that. Some rugby players have made the move to American football. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know what lessons can be learned, but soccer is probably the most popular game on the face of the earth because, for the most part, all you need is a ball. And, you know, you see little countries like Croatia make it to the semis, That's made it to the final four years ago. There's a country of only four million people. And yeah. here they are with such prowess in a sport like soccer. I know there's all sorts of controversies swirling around the Qatar games, whether it be the migrant workers and some of the slave wages yeah. and... There's other atrocities, human rights violations in that country. And I, I understand and I know all that. But these types of international events are perfect for me. Myself and my young fellow Jack, we watched some or all of every single game in the tournament. So you we know, quite enjoyed it yesterday. And, and you know, when uh, I used to watch soccer here in the city, and when you had like, teams like St. Pat's and St. Bonds and fellows like Joe Brown, you may know these guys. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, and uh, the St. Pat's had a, had a football, uh, soccer team, and their coach introduced the short pass, and that's what they were doing yesterday on the uh, World Cup. But these guys are certainly talented, and uh, I don't know whatever happened to Pele at the first of the tournament. They talked about him being in can in uh, in hospital, dying. Did he, did he die? No, he didn't. He's still with us. Good. I, I remember his name as a young fellow. But, you know, as I said, I, li- I, I, I don't know much about the game, but I learned, I learned a few things. But if they get a better-looking trophy and uh, organize their, their end-of-game ceremony, it'd be better. I think, I think people like it better. But that's my, that's my, that's my t- take of it, you know. So thanks a lot, Patty. Appreciate the time, Brian. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, I mean, American football, like, l- most of my pals who are sporting-minded, they love watching the NFL. I have a soft spot for the CFL as well, having spent all those years in Alberta, and the CFL is really quite popular in different parts of the country. The NFL, I get it. I, was, you, I used to be really big into watching the NFL as well. I think a lot of what makes it as popular as it is, though, is the betting. I mean, fantasy football is enormous. It's probably the most money uh, bet on sports in North America has got to be fantasy football. I mean, I know the most, uh, the sport that brings in the most money in form of betting is absolutely thoroughbred horse racing, and that still remains the fact to this day. But we're the NFL, and this is an extremely unpopular opinion, where it becomes less than attractive for me these days is that it's boring. Right? People call soccer boring because there's large stretches of the game where very little is happening. Like you watch Spain play, and they can have upwards of a thousand passes in one 60 minute game, one 90 minute game. It's sort of wild when you think about it. But the reality inside of football, when the ball is in play, 
it's of course very exciting and the athletes are absolutely unbelievable i mean there's different size players so it's a game for all but the fact remains there's somewhere in the average of about i don't know 60 minute clock the ball's only in play about 11 and a half minutes out of 60. it just takes forever and the amount of commercials inside it is also a little bit painful and you know on the world of commercials and pro sports is completely dominated now by betting ads betting apps and those types of things but so i get it soccer can be a little bit much but when you do comparisons of physical sports and ball in play and like dave williams is a big uh, nfl fan i'm in an nfl pool but then you know sports that might be not as traditional not as popular here or around the country for instance rugby the same players are on the pitch unless they get subbed out for the full 80 minutes it's constant action as opposed to 11 and a half minutes of the ball actually in play when you watch the NFL. I don't know how many millions of people watched the Super Bowl last year. Any idea off the top of your head, Dave, what ratings would look like for the Super Bowl? Hundreds of millions anyway, right? Well, uh, maybe not that much. But yesterday, there's without question in excess of a billion people watched France play Argentina. And I get it's not everyone's cup of tea, and sports might be the furthest thing from your mind. I also completely get that. You know, for me, it's just one of those escapes. 100 million was it, Dave, watched the Super Bowl last year. So you contrast 100 million. And, of course, I know that's very much simply an American game. They do have American football in different countries around the world. Not as popular, of course, as it would be in the United States. I mean, just look in the south of the states. Texas, we'll just pick for an example. They can get 30, 40, 50,000 people go watch a high school game. High school football gets tens of thousands of people on a Friday night with the Friday night lights. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, of course, if you want to talk about the World Cup, great. But anything else under the sun, it's up to you and your call right after this. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. One day, maybe it was Friday last week, there was a blog post by Des Sullivan, of course, known as Uncle Gnarly Online, about the future of the Muskrat Falls project. And Mr. Sullivan's thought on the matter is, before the province spends hundreds of millions and who knows how much more to try to rectify the problems, whether it be on the Labrador Island link or at Soldier's Pond, that the thought is to abandon it. Uh, a couple of fairly interesting, frustrated emailers over the weekend, thinking that I... I should be 100% on board with Mr. Sullivan's thought as opposed to ask questions about how it looks because I don't think anyone really understands the legal ramifications of that at this moment in time. Number one, being in our relationship with Amera, we owe them a lot of power and we have for a long time. Their customers are already frustrated as is Nova Scotia Power and Amera. But the big thought is, you know, regardless of where or what anyone thinks of the project, and I think as I characterized it last week, because I think most of us would like to throw it directly into the sun, but the lenders, they don't care. That is not their concern. They have absolutely no skin in the game other than the fact that they loaned us money and they want it back. If Muskrat never produces one gig of energy used, the bill is coming due. So that added to, I wonder what it means for the different uh, loan guarantees that have been put in place. The Harper government uh, put forward a $5 billion loan guarantee, and all that really means is that the province was able to borrow money at the interest rate charged to the federal government. They backstopped it. And we don't even know what, what abandoning means to whether or not all of a sudden they'd be on the hook for the amounts that they put a guarantee in place of. So what does that mean for that? Does that mean all of a sudden that debt gets transferred over to the province at the rate we can borrow at? 
and whether or not we can actually cover the long-term borrowing that's in place for that monies. So it was $5 billion from the Harper government. Then the Trudeau Liberals added another $3.9 billion to that for federal loan guarantee. And in the most recent package, talking about controlling rates, or as people like to call it, rate mitigation, $5.2 billion package. And therein was $3.2 billion uh, associated with our Hibernia, the federal government's Hibernia assets. Then there was an additional billion-dollar loan and an additional uh, loan guarantee covering a billion dollars' worth of loan uh, borrowing. So it's fine to say and think that it's something worth considering, and fair enough, we should be considering everything at this moment in time, but I don't know how that works legally or with our contractual obligations. Then you factor in a company that we've touted many times, not just here, but throughout the media and for people who are following along, especially with presentations made to the Public Utilities Board, and that's Liberty Consulting. They're the group that has warned us about a variety of different things regarding if there is storm damage, and there has been ice damage on towers in Labrador already, if there's storm damage or a break in service over the Labrador Island Link or down through the Long Range Mountains, they warned about extended brownouts or blackouts. Repair work that could take 45, 60 days. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. But now in their most recent report, their 17th quarterly report to the PUB, they're much more optimistic about the Labrador Island Link in particular. They say that some of the most recent testing gives them reason to be more optimistic and bullish on it than they were in the past. Here's some of the quotes from them. Management has reported its successful completion, bringing the Labrador Island Link past a major milestone in reaching commercial operation. Trial operation took place under comparatively low power flows, for example, with lingering synchronous condenser problems restricting power flows to 315 megawatts. Plants call for increased flows between 675 and 900 megawatts, and 900 is the maximum capacity on that link, as the system load increases with the onset of cold weather. When they had some low power flow uh, regarding uh, the amount of megawattage, we were told, remember that Thursday a few weeks ago, where people were told from 8 to 8, will this be this testing ongoing, and it may see some power disruptions, shouldn't last more than 30 minutes, and we got through that day unscathed. But then they upped the load to 700, and we saw an intentional tripping, tripping of the system. So it wasn't the success that it was the day prior with power loads that were much lower, and that was at 500 megawatts. So Liberty, all of a sudden, and they, they seem to have been very frank and fair with their observations and their consequential report of risks and what have you with the project, but now all of a sudden they sound a little bit more bullish about where we are regarding doing or solving some of the issues, in particular the software-related issues on the Labrador Island Link. So I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition from some of their former uh, quarterly reports that they make to the PUB. And I get continually, since there was a decision made by Dr. Vian Timmons and seven vice presidents at Memorial University, and of course the big issues there would be tuition, uh, maintenance deficits, and on and on it goes. But this one, you never know exactly what's going to pique people's interest and how you're going to get emotional reactions to. So regardless of the hike in tuition, which is an important conversation, because access to education is going to play a massive role in how sustainable the problems will be in the long term. 
But the number one issue that got people riled up was the decision to stop singing the Ode to Newfoundland at convocation ceremonies. And that dates all the way back to the 1950s. And you've heard the story many times, but I'm still to this day getting emails from frustrated people from in the province who think that this was completely unnecessary. So the rationale offered was that there was no mention of Labrador and some people from the big land may feel excluded. Then there was also references to and we've seen some examples of this back to the 2018 amendment for the Canadian National Anthem. God guard thee, as loved our fathers, so we love. So apparently, given uh, some of the goings on at a most recent Senate meeting, there was a divide, and it was potentially contentious, about consideration to address that decision and maybe see a way to work it back into the convocation ceremonies. Whether it be as is, to, and I wasn't in the room, so I don't know every conversation that was had, was maybe just add the Ode to Labrador and or some lyrical adjustments made to the Ode to Newfoundland itself, which could, sounds very fundamental to me, not that I'm going to be able to compose any adjustments or amendments or additions to the Ode, but they actually have a music department, or whether or not it becomes a public input, call it contest, for who can put forward the most viable, manageable, and accepted uh, recommendation regarding Theo, but I don't, I'm not surprised because it kind of came out of left field for me. And when you're saying inclusion, to exclude something doesn't feel like inclusion to me. So they're apparently going to possibly reconsider how they approach that conversation at Memorial University, but I think people would be curious to see if there's somehow there can be keep the ode, whether it be add the ode to Newfoundland and its old Tenenbaum melody or something else. All right. Many people still looking at, because of the sales have not been finalized, certainly outside the metro region, regarding the churches and the insolvency that the Episcopal Corporation faces. You know, the effort to compensate some 100 victims at Mount Cashel with a price tag coming in somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 million, and they're nowhere there, near it. There has been much of the properties in this area sold, and curiously, you know, for instance, the Mary Queen of Peace uh, Parish Hall, the Bingo Hall, and the two fields behind it sold for $500,000 more than the Basilica Complex, which is always quite interesting to look at. And then there's a story we're hearing from the Ghouls and St. Kevin's Parish. St. Kevin's made national news back in 2017 with what was a wildly popular Chase the Ace. Unbelievable. At the end of the chase days, which I think, if I remember correctly, came down to the very last card in the deck, they banked some $5.8 million on one fundraising initiative, the envy of every charity, not-for-profit, church, or otherwise organization in the country. Because it's just so simple, right? Chase the ace. So because of the fact that we're selling off church property, there was an out-of-court settlement between the Episcopal Corporation, the St. Kevin's Parish, and the lawyers representing the victims of Mount Cashel. But what we see now, and this is based on a financial statement, the lips are sealed out because of the sealed court settlement, out-of-court settlement. But when they present their own finances to their congregants, of which they get some uh, 50 to 100 people coming for weekly service, that they show cash on hand of about $1. million, and that's been set aside for maintenance already, as opposed to the fact they were absolutely flush with cash after they put that $5.8 million in the bank. They also sold some agricultural land to the provincial government to the tune of $1.2 million. The out-of-course settlement includes the parish now has ownership of the church itself, the parish hall, and the cemetery. And the cemetery has been excluded from all of these sales, regardless of the churches we're talking about. But now, obviously, 
just based on what we see in the financial uh, statement and the monies they once had in the bank, and they're now the return to parishioners for more and more help, is that obviously there was some deal struck that saw four point odd million dollars go from St. Kevin's Parish to the Episcopal Corporation to be paid out in the form of compensation, which sort of flies in the face of a court ruling that was made prior, where the judge said that money that was had a very specific purpose as itemized on their, uh, their lottery application, and it was not including compensation payments for anybody, including the folks at Mount Cashel. But now at a court with, I guess, some heavy hands in there, and everyone knows and understands we've got to compensate the victims, and this has made it all, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. But it looks like all that success has been whittled away at. Somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 million has gone into the compensation pot as opposed to in the bank account out at St. Kevin's Parish themselves. And if you're one of those folks who has that concern, and we heard one very specific concern from a caller some while back about even an access point to the cemetery of which there is only one at that particular church. Can't remember which one it was. But if the property uh, is sold, and it has been, and there's some sort of development that does not include the church continuing on offering the types of services that the parishioners have become accustomed to over decades and centuries, that there might be no way to get into the cemetery. You know, it might be trying to look for an access point and a bit of easement between whether it be the new developers or their neighbors to even try to get to the cemetery. And then very specific concerns, like, for instance, that Holy, Holy Rosary in the Cove. You know, the main cemetery itself, up behind the rectory, you know, I, I have family in that graveyard, uh, including my nan and papa, my Uncle Steve. There's also the thought that maybe, just maybe, there's so many others that are buried much closer to the church proper itself, many of whom may not have a marked grave. And so that will be the potential to build over something that has been excluded from these types of sales. So there's always lots of wiggles inside of all these issues. But if you're one of those concerned parishioners, and I think it's probably a pretty common opinion amongst them, that it's a crying shame that it's on the backs of the folks who have been long time going to these churches for mass, maybe were married in these churches, had their children baptized in these churches, had the, uh, their confirmation in those churches, and now all of a sudden through no fault of theirs, away it goes. And so for some, that might be the end of the road for any of those types of Catholic offerings in these communities, wherever that may be in the province, or where the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation of St. John's owns the property. Okay, let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And as our truck driving fan, Tony Power, points out, for starters, there's no Marine Atlantic service today or tonight. He wants folks to be aware. Also, he goes on to point out, when we were talking about 24-7 snow clearing and ice control services, Tony says, with the trucking industry, most of our most of our most products are overnight delivery medical supplies food etc they move 24 7 so of course it might be policy at the department to not plow between 11 p.m and 5 a.m but that doesn't mean people aren't on the road let's go ahead and take a break when we come back we're speaking to you on a topic of your choosing if you're in the st john's metro region the number to dial 273-5211 or elsewhere it's toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626 we're taking a break and then we're coming back Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the NDP member for the Torngat Mountains. That's Leela Evans. Good morning, Leela. You're on the air. Good morning, Leela Evans. You're on the air. Is her pot up, David? <clears throat> I'm going to put Miss Evans on hold for one moment. Let's go to line number two. Cindy, you're on the air. Oh, man. 
Cindy on line number two, you're on the air. I don't know if anyone can hear me. I, I can hear you now. Can you hear me, Cindy? Uh, this is uh, MHA Lee Levin's call. Oh, so you've got the lines mixed up. Sorry, Dave. Okay, so line number two, we are saying good morning to the NDP member for the Torngat Mountains, Leela Evans. Good morning, Leela. You are on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. <laughs> so I see in the news, and, uh, of course, the length of the laundry list of concerns in the Torngat Mountains are, I think, well understood, but let's talk about health care. There's a diverting obstetrical services to Lab City for the next month. That's a five-hour drive. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? Well, it's, it's concerning for all the people uh, of Labrador, like, you know, southern Labrador, uh, Lake Melville region, and especially the North Coast, because with the North Coast, we're restricted by, uh, because we actually have to fly into Goose Bay, and so we'll have to fly in further to get over to, to Lab West. It's not just the obstetrics, Patty. Um, what's being diversion, diverted as well as the medical, the medevac services. So, like, in a, a medical emergency where somebody has to be... Uh, airlifted off the north coast of Labrador, that's always very, very problematic. But now we have to go either to, to Lab West or to St. Anthony. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's creating a, a lot of anxiety for, for the people of Labrador uh, to, to have this happen, you know, and, and having the press release come out just before the, uh, the weekend, uh, you know, was, was very troubling for people. Do we know what's driving it? Is there a no OBGYN, an MD, or is it nursing issues? What's driving this diversion? Well, one, one of the biggest problems they're, they're facing right now is, um, you know, the reliance on locums to, to, to fill the gaps in the, in the permanent uh, nurses. And, of course, with the, with the locums, uh, they can pick and choose when they work. Uh, and, you know, you, you can't force them over to work, especially over the holidays. So... It's very concerning, and also too is just creating a situation for the uh, for the nurses that's already in the system because they are having to bridge the gap. So they have to, to you know, to work extra hours, extra shifts, and uh, it, it's really, Patty, um, like the, the North Coast in my district, like I says, we're really vulnerable because we depend a lot on uh, good weather for. Uh, are the airplane, the aircraft to be able to fly. So even patients going out for regular, regular uh, doctor visits, whether it's chemotherapy or whether it's to get a X-ray or a scan or to to get some, uh, uh, you know, to to see a doctor, uh, they have to rely on good weather, and that's especially troubling for a medevac service as well. Um, and in May we have to rely on daylight because uh, the, the planes can't fly after dark. So this is just an extra burden put on the people of the North Coast. And unfortunately for Northern Labrador, we were already in a crisis for health care. Uh, we were already in a crisis for the price of fuel. Like, you know, you see the prices now, we're paying astronomic prices um, compared to, to other regions. And for stove oil, like for, for a drum of stove oil, which is 205 litres, it's going to cost, it, 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 it's costing us almost $500. Um, you know, and we're, we're, we're looking at um, really, really uh, struggling times for, for the people on the North Coast. And to have this extra burden put on with the, uh, with the, with the uh, diversion of all the medical, med- Medicare uh, medical services is really, really troubling. Um, Lely, you mentioned that the uh, Medivac services in Nain can only operate in the daylight. Is that because they only have one crew that has a contract for daylight service? Or is there some issue where they actually cannot fly at night? This has been an ongoing, an ongoing issue now since, since you know, since when they put in the airstrip in the 80s. Uh, 
the the airstrip there where it's located, they can actually have night lights on the airstrip. So it wasn't a matter of them not putting the the night lights on, uh, the, you know, um, the night landing lights as, as they couldn't. And it's taken this long to actually do the pre to do the feasibility study. Like in 2019, like when I started as the MHA, it was really, really concerning because we had a lot of situations where patients were delayed in being medevac because they had to wait until daylight. And even though there's, uh, you know, Goose Bay does have some search and rescue and um, Coast Guard um, um, abilities to cover, a lot of times they're not available. So, you know, just this past year, uh, one of my constituents in Nain had a heart attack in early hours, and uh, they were supposed to um, airlift them out by helicopter, but the helicopter never came. They had to end up waiting until daylight, uh, which was around 7 o'clock in the morning. And when somebody is having a heart attack, Patty, I mean, the listeners know that the muscle of the heart is dying. So these delays, like, you know, we were very fortunate he didn't die, but he's impacted now. Like, I, I see him every time I'm in Nain, and he talks to me about his quality of life because he's impacted because of this heart attack. And uh, so it, it's really good they're doing the feasibility study, but it shouldn't, have took, it shouldn't have took 30 years to actually do this for the airstrip. Like, for, on, for us on the North Coast, one of the things I'd, I'd like for people to understand is that we, like, we don't have the same level of services and infrastructure as the other districts do. And it's not because we're so located far away is we never ever had the, uh, the opportunity, you know, it, it wasn't given to us. Uh, on that front, you know, have you had the opportunity, for instance, I know Happy Valley Goose Bay is outside of your district, but, you know, we had stories coming from there about the amount of overtime worked by paramedics and the difficulty in keeping them long term. Inside the Torngat Mountains, have you had a chance to speak with someone directly like Dr. Megan Hayes? Because this is going to be the rub for every single rural remote part of the province is getting someone, a healthcare professional from doctors down or doctors included, pardon me, to actually want to work there. And, you know, there's going to have to be a very specific targeted plan for Dr. Hayes and her office, who's the deputy minister responsible for recruitment and retention of all healthcare professionals. Have you had a chance to speak with her about her thoughts on it, what they're doing to put uh, specific incentive packages in place for your region? Well, I talked to Dr. Pelfrey and, and Sister Elizabeth Davis when they were going through the health care, uh, you know, the accord for the, you know, for the, the new plan for, for health care services for the whole province. And now that Dr. Pelfrey is actually in in the department, uh, you know, I've, I've spoken to him several times. And uh, the, the last conversation, uh, you know, I, I, I was I was a little bit um, not harsh, but you know, because he's, he's, he's such a nice man. You always want to be respectful for, to him. And he had he had traveled up to, to Hope, to one community, and he was in there, I think, for like a day. Uh, and we're looking at, uh, you know, revising the, the, the health care plan. But, but my district has so many barriers, but it's because of the failures to address the lack of services. And, like, right now, we're in this health care crisis in, in Labrador, this newest one because of the ability to recruit, recruit nurses, uh, you know, new nurses that are available. And this reliance on the locums is really creating a, a problem. And, like, for me, Patty, as, as MHA, it's so easy to, to criticize, uh, you know, and, and, and to be negative, you know. 
I, I talked to the CEO of Lambda Grant for Health, uh, and, you know, I, I tried to be positive, and I, I was really um, glad that, you know, she, she called and we had a good discussion on what's causing the problems and, you know, how we're going to get through this together. But at the end of the day, we have to find a way so that we can, include, we, uh, we can increase the number of, of nurses we have available on staff that are getting benefits, that are getting, you know, um, and, all, and, and also being treated fairly because what's happening now is the nurses that are picking up the slack for these locums, are, you know, are, are being forced to work extra shifts. And, and, and that's very stressful, especially if it's during holidays when everybody wants to be off. Because what's going to happen is if you, you create a situation in the province, and this has been ongoing, and this is at the root of the entire problem, is that the, the healthcare professionals, the, 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 the nurses, the doctors, they're being over, overworked, overburdened, and overwhelmed. And what's, what's happening is they're driving them to other areas of the province, sorry, other areas of the country, and also they're driving them away from the profession. So that's that like that's what really what what's got to change. But in in my district right now, even if you took away this new crisis, we'd still be in a healthcare crisis because I have people who are not able to get out to their to their treatment to their to their medical appointments, uh, and I have also as troubling as people not being able to get home uh, after going out for chemo, going out out for for serious treatment, uh, you know, surgery, uh, and they're stuck in Goose Bay trying to get home to the community, sometimes up to five to seven days, uh, in addition to their, their regular travel times. And um, that's, that's a real bad burden, per, per, uh, that's a real burden that most people in this province are not aware of. Leela, do we happen to know uh, how many people from Labrador are currently enrolled, whether it be respiratory therapists or registered nurses or nurse practitioners? Because I think part of the solution here is going to have to be people are going to be much more willing to practice in Labrador or in Burgio or in St. Anthony if they have some attachment to the region. Do you happen to know how many Labradorians are currently in training to be one healthcare worker or another? No, no, I, I don't know right now, but I know there's there's something there's there's plans in the works to actually try and put on another program uh, for nurses. Um, but Patty, another thing too is it doesn't matter how many people graduate; you've got to find a way to attract them to your area. And like you know, you can't treat all regions of the province the same because what's going to end up happening is everybody is going to want to work in the major major centers. Right, and also, two people are, are are not going to be willing in this day and age to give up the quality of life uh, for a profession. And and I think that's that's at the root of this problem is that we need to have more investment in actually recruiting nurses and doctors and and the other professions. But we also have to look at quality of life for those 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 people to ensure that when we do get them to an area that they're going to be willing to stay and, and build a life in that, in that area. And that's very, very important for, for outport Newfoundland, rural Newfoundland and Labrador, and for Labrador uh, as a whole. Yeah, that, that's why I was wondering aloud about people from the region training to be a registered nurse, for instance, because tailoring up a package for that person to move back to a place they're familiar with, probably have family and friends, is going to make it easier than trying to recruit someone who's from 
Mount Pearl, for instance. So, Leela, I appreciate the time. Anything else you'd like to say? Before we go, I I am really concerned. I'm concerned about this crisis. But I am probably one of the strongest and maybe the only advocate right now uh, for the regional health authorities. You know, with this new legislation, they're looking at getting rid of the health authorities, going to one provincial health authority. And we saw how that worked for the school board. And for the rural areas, they... You know, they, they, they suffer, and, and especially for Labrador and for northern Labrador especially suffer. I'm really, really concerned about this one provincial health authority. I'm really concerned about these, uh, these health councils that don't have much autonomy and much, much real uh, pressure and power to be able to influence decisions that impact our regions. And uh, especially Labrador. Labrador should have had its own health authority. We've always been uh, tied to St. Anthony, and that's been basically a draw from resources and staff and, and infrastructure for Labrador. Labrador should have just the same as Western, just the same as Eastern Health. We should have a larger health, large healthcare center that could provide the needs of all the uh, of, of the people of Labrador. And the fact that it's, uh, that's not happening really, really is it's it's unfair. And uh, you know, La- Labrador has never been treated fairly when it comes to healthcare. And we need, we need to get that solved. And, and people in Labrador need to speak up and, and say, now is the time to do it. I talked to Dr. Pelfrey several times about it. You know, we shouldn't be tied to St. Anthony anymore. St. Anthony is on the northern tip of, of the Alnumnuth land, you know, as, as, a, as a, it's a real gap in, in services for us. And uh, we should have our own health authority in Central or in Lab West where Labradorians could access the same level of health care as other health, uh, the other health authorities. Appreciate the time this morning, Leela. Thank you. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Leela Evans. She's the uh, NDP member for Torngat Mountains. Okay, time for the news. When we come back, plenty of show to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And now welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Cindy, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Um, I'm calling from Fogo Island because I want to make people aware who may not be on social media that the Brimstone Head Lions Club, in partnership with Fogo Island Pride, are providing food hampers for pickup on Wednesday of this week, December 21st. So people who are experiencing financial hardship are welcome to come to the Lions Club building between 4 and 5.30 p.m., to pick up a box of food and these will be staples uh there will be no um non there will be no perishable items but staples that can go in your pantry and and last for a long time um if anybody is not able to come pick it up because you don't have a car and you want a family member or a friend to pick up you must just call ahead to myself cindy at 989-1232 or don at 235-1948 and let us know who's picking up because it is one box per family. Um, We've been really overwhelmed with the generosity of Fogo Islanders who are able to contribute to this cause. We've had boxes in various grocery stores and we've collected lots of items. Um, We've had two very generous donations from one from a not-for-profit in the area and one from a businessman. So we are going to do our best to keep this rolling throughout the winter because we know how much people are struggling. No doubt they are. How many people are you going to be able to help with the amount of food you have on hand? 
Well, we, we're going We're going to be there today sorting through all of it. We expect that we will probably be able to help 40 people this coming week. It sounds good. I mean, the need is just so unbelievable this year. I, you know, I've been doing this a long time and hearing these needy stories uh, a lot, and I'm pleased to take them on. But this year just has a much different vibe than any year I can remember in the past. Yes. And, you know, um, I've been a member of uh, a volunteer with Fogo Island Pride. And during COVID, there were lots of grants and funding for food insecurity. But that a lot of that has seemed to have um, dried up recently. So uh, Fogo Island Pride is working with the Brimstone Head Lions Club to try to continue this to the people of Fogo Island because Fogo Island Pride has done it for two years already. So we really hope that we can continue to uh, do it. But um, thank you so much for all you do on your show about food insecurity about mental health about our physician shortages which of course is still a problem here on Fogo Island because we are still dealing with um, you know various locums coming and sometimes we have no coverage at all so I was listening to your previous um, caller and I can only imagine how difficult that is in Labrador. Yeah, no question. Leela Evans paints a very bleak picture for that region. Uh, just a couple of specific questions. You know, we talk about healthcare now in Fogo Island. For the first time in centuries, there's no family doctor. Has anything happened there on that front? I haven't heard. Um, not that I'm aware of with any uh, permanent solution. You know, I know Central Health is working very hard because I've been on uh, a couple of committees with Central Health, and I'm also one of the people um, that does a uh, local phys- physician and recruitment um welcome package for doctors so we've met a lot of very nice locums and we give them a lot of information about you know what it's like to live here and we offer to drive them around and and introduce them to people in the community um so i i've been in touch with the mayor a few times and i think there's something in the works but i just and one doctor is not going to be enough for us because one doctor gets overwhelmed naturally because there's 2,440 people living on this island. So one doctor is not able to do it. We need two. Uh, If you don't mind, I have another Fogo Island-specific question I'd like to ask. Sure, go ahead. Okay. So and we've also seen that Scotiabank pulled out. And that's not just a matter of people being unable to go to a bank physically and do their transactions or pay a bill or what have you. It has a massive implication for local business, too, because if I've got to take the ferry and end up going to Gander and I go to a big box store or some retailer, all of a sudden I came home with my vehicle full as opposed to support the local business because it just makes sense. I'm there. I might have a better, better selection and better pricing possibly. So what has that looked like and felt like because if I was a local shop owner on Fogo Island just losing the bank is a bigger deal than me being able to go in and pay my bill yeah it's it's been really difficult I know from uh, the point of view of our not-for-profit Brimstone Head Lions Club that we are a cash-only not-for-profit. So when we do uh, TV bingo to keep our club going or when we have functions in our hall, uh, we don't have anything other than to – no way to, to uh, take payments other than cash. So I know the treasurer has to make frequent trips off the island to deposit that cash in a Scotiabank in Gander. Um, I know other businesses, like, for instance, the recycling business that's here, they're cash only, so they have to go and make deposits. People that are getting their uh, cost of living checks uh, have no way to deposit them. 
So, and older people aren't used to, you know, you having an app on their phone and taking a picture. So it's been, yeah. And those checks will be stale dated after six months. So they really have to make a trip to Gander to deposit their checks. So everybody is just starting to realize how far reaching it is and the implications of what that means. Um, I know that our town has been working with a credit union to come here and they've of course it takes it's a process because you have to get buy-in from the community they met with business owners they asked for surveys to be done by citizens on the island and I think we're getting close to finding out if that's actually going to come to fruition which I really hope it does because it creates an enormous hardship for people on this island. Yeah no question I knew that there was some discussions with the credit union to come to town which sounds like the most uh, probably the easiest option to consider at this moment because some of the major banking institutions they're making these types of moves right across the country and once you lose them it's hard to foresee them coming back yeah definitely so i think the credit union is probably our only hope so we're trying to be hopeful about everything about the physicians we're so appreciative of the locums that have come they've been really amazing um and i hope it continues because uh the winter is getting uh the winter is approaching uh ferry travel is sometimes canceled so then if there's no coverage you can't get someone off the island it uh, it creates a real issue. It's a little scary. Last uh, details one more time about the food hampers, please. The food hampers. This Wednesday, December 21st, first come, first serve, pick up between 4 and 5.30 p.m. at the Lions Club. If you can't get out, please call ahead to Cindy at 989-1232 or Dawn at 235-1948 to tell us who is going to pick up your hamper for you. Appreciate the time this morning, Cindy. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and get a break in. When we come back, there's a caller there in the queue to talk about the cost of living check, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, sorry, I got my voice gone. I'm calling uh, from my brother about that cost of living check. Um, it was taken back from him because he owed child support for 32 years. So I contacted a couple of offices from the government, and they told me the only thing they can do was sue them. To sue the government? Yeah, for $500. Yeah, it's always a fool's errand, too, because not only is the amount 500 I was going to say only $500, but $500 is that governments have the wherewithal and the capacity to, to wear you out and for it to cost so much. You'll never get back the cost associated with a legal challenge for the sake of the 500 bucks. Unbelievable. It is, Patty. And like he's getting social services, he's only living on $230 every two weeks. And he can't work because he got a defibrillator in me at 14 heart attacks. 14 heart attacks? Yeah, and like literally, like, he's hungry, right? And he was expecting this check for Christmas. And this is my that. Yeah, we actually tried to find out uh, who may indeed see their cost of living check clawed back, whether it be about child support or the you know, amount of outstanding fines or what have you. We couldn't get a specific uh, reply, though. So in this example, obviously, that money's gone. Yeah. I mean, 32 years ago, right? They, they wouldn't take it back if you would serve or text. But for child support, they said they had to take it back. But for the suit of government for $500, like, right? 
Yeah. Now, look, I don't dispute if someone owes child support payments, then there's a, a legitimate reasons why. But that 32 years is a long time for that to be, you know, like, where's the 500 bucks going to go? Is the government just going to keep it or are they going to give it to that family? Normally, government's going to keep it. Okay, they so took it back. So that does nothing for the money that was not paid to that mother and child. So strange one. I mean, I can even understand if I owe a big load in outstanding fines for them to claw back my cost of living check because that's who I owe. I owe the government. But in this case, that money wasn't owed to the government. That money was owed to an individual, a family. Yes, yes, yes. But they took it right. So is anybody able to help the poor, poor fella? No, boy, no. I mean, he's in a sad situation, Barry. Uh, and where is he? Does he have a, a safe place to live? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. He has his own place, like great housing. Okay. Well, at least he that's the good news. Right? Yeah. But, I mean, he was expecting his check like for Christmas, right? Oh, yeah. I, I know somebody who basically had the money spent, but if they applied late and they might not get theirs until sometime in the new year, so it won't be any Christmas money. No, I know, but there um, last spring when they had just two hundred dollars and for something, mm-hmm. now they never took that back from him. He got that. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Get it on one side, don't on the other. It's sometimes hard to understand. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It is so. Well, wish him well for me, and hopefully he's able to find himself uh, uh, content and uh, Merry Christmas to the best of his abilities. And I appreciate your time this morning, and I wish you the same. Okay, Benny, thank you. Take good care. You too, bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, my voice is failing on me, Dave. Does it sound like that? It does in my headset. Okay, let's go to line number one. Robert, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, I want to thank you for taking my call, and uh, a Merry Christmas to you. The very same to you and yours, Robert. Um, so I'm calling in relation to the Labrador nursing uh, situation that's being talked about. And, you know, we, we've been we've had uh, two kids in the last two years in, in Labrador, and so I think we've seen firsthand uh, – you know, and and some of the challenges that uh, that exist up there, and and I got to be honest, after you know listening to Leela talk, I also went and listened to uh, uh, the CEO of Lab Grenfell Health. Uh, she spoke on Labrador Morning this morning as well, and I wanted to collect my thoughts before having a chat. But I, I got to say, one of the one of the real big challenges that they deal with there is that the appeal of being a locum is higher than the appeal of being uh, a permanent staff. Um, you're, a lot of the locums are being, who, are, who are coming in temp- as temporary uh, workers, a lot of them are able to kind of secure temporary work you know, on a cons- uh, consistent basis at a higher pay than, than the permanent nurses and are typically not able to be forced to come into work when they're not on shift. So, you know, if you're a permanent worker in a place like Lab Grenfell Health or anywhere else, you you, you can be mandated to work. Um, you can regularly face situations where, you know, uh, you're kind of leaned on because there's no uh, other permanent workers to come in, that, that type of situation. And I think, you know, a place like Lab Grenfell Health really heavily relies on, on locums to deliver basic levels of service and you know the fact that there's a lot of appeal for that locum position versus the permanent ones is a real systematic challenge that 
really has come to the forefront with the issues that are being faced now where people are having to go, you know, six and a half hour drive away to, to give birth. And this, but this issue has been known about for a long time. And, and even that this was going to be a problem over Christmas was known about for a long time. So it's a bit shocking um, to see it kind of announced immediately on a Friday afternoon. It was kind of disrespectful, to be honest, to people here that, that this wasn't a, a more upfront conversation. And I realize they're doing a lot to try and, and, and ease the, the challenges on, on expecting mothers. But this is something that's been ongoing for a, a long time, and, and there's been a, a real challenge with, especially in the obstetrics uh, department there. I can see how locums would be the preferred option for many, you know, because you do a lot more on your time, your schedule, your want, as opposed to the demands being placed in front of you and you live up to them or out you, do, out you go. There's also a problem with locums, generally speaking. You know, we've heard from doctors on the mainland who have indeed come to this province uh, to do a locum, and because of the cost and the time and the frustration, they just say it's not worth it. So this is a national issue that we've got to address. The province is putting up all these barriers amongst themselves to make it difficult for the mobility of healthcare professionals, doctors in this case, just doesn't make any sense. So the locum doctors that you've seen come to your neck of the woods, Robert, have they been from out of province or from the island or what do we know about that? I mean, you get both, uh, but I mean, it, the doctor situation is is probably not where this one's rooting from. This one's rooting from nurses. That's right. And, 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 it's, and it's important to realize that um, the, there's differences in, in how local nurses and locum doctors are treated and how, you know, regular nurses and regular doctors in places like here are treated. I, I don't want to tell t- uh, tales too much uh, kind of out of uh, out of context, but like, you know, in the nurse situation, um, there are nurses who would work at, say, the Labrador Health Center who, who makes significantly less money than the locums beside them, whereas when it comes to the doctor situation, the disparity is a lot, uh, lot less. Um, likewise, you know, like you mentioned, there's all this competition for uh, nurses and doctors all across the country but all across the province and like i know for instance that there are nurses who come out of med- uh, who come out of uh, nursing school and have been offered you know more money to stay in st john's at eastern health than at lab grenfell health for the same job and in fact the job in lab grenfell health would end up being more you know uh, more time consuming and all that and the same job and getting offered more to stay in eastern health in the same position and i mean you know any other place where you go to work in a northern place where there's less services, less staff, you would expect that there'd be quite a, a pay differential, and, and there might be in some cases, but but it's not a guaranteed. And the province, you know, provides some support for things like a northern allowance, but like as a single individual, that's it's about you know twenty five hundred dollars to be at Louder Health Center, that northern allowance, which you know covers maybe a flight or two, um, not really any sort of differential in the living uh, uh, expenses over the course of a year. Um, and one of the things I think that's worth mentioning too, and, and this is something that uh, Leela tried to uh, talk a little bit about. I think people don't fully realize how many births go on at Labrador Health Center. Um, so at, at Labrador Health Center, they actually have more births than Lab West and St. Anthony combined. And so they, you know, the, there's actually not very many obstetrics nurses at that center um, for how many births that are, are given compared to even the same ones in Lab Grenfell Health. Um, when you look 
across the the health region, it's hard to assess how much resources go to which different places. But but you look at at the health center in St. Anthony, and they they have more beds than Lab West and and Labrador Health Center combined. But yet the Labrador Health Center is the one that that has the the most emergency uh, situations. Um, the most uh, births by far, you know, the most admissions, but has way fewer beds per capita than the other two um, locations. And and I think where this is all compounded, and, and notice that this issue with services uh, does impact the medevac services, and, and that's where I think there's that extra effect where um, nurses at the Labrador Health Center, doctors at the Labrador Health Center, have also been constantly having to deal with issues because of the medevac services often in our province. When when I think back about, you know, the the really um, unfortunate situation we went through, it's important to realize that, that one poor obstetrics nurse had to stay for 24 hours straight with us because there was nobody else who could come in so that while we were waiting for, you know, the medevac that ended up taking 30 hours, but, you know, one nurse herself had to stay on for a full 24-hour shift because there just wasn't the support. And you're thinking about, you know, one of the most dire situations that's happened to any set of parents there. And, and that's the kind of thing where, you know, it's a constant occurrence where, you know, the lack of uh, timely medevac services is adding huge stresses onto those nurses in those very important positions there as well. Robert, not to pick a scab or to open up a wound, but you come from a position of uh, personal experience with the system, the shortcomings and the shortfalls. You say this is the issue that you and your family went through. Just so people know that we are talking with someone who has been in the system and has seen where it's broken down. What happened with you and your family, even though I know the story? If you don't mind retelling, and if you don't want to, please don't, about your personal experience. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I... Uh, <laughs> Been a been a while since I spoke about it much, but I mean our, our situation uh, was one where we had a our, our daughter Rhea who uh, passed away um, about five months after she was born, uh, but she was born very ill in at Labrador Health Center, and it was unexpected. Um, uh, there was no signs. Um, she ended up having a, a rare a genetic condition and. Uh, we were there for about 30 hours before the medevac got her out, and she was pretty well touch and go the whole time. So it it was um, pretty pretty traumatic, um, as as you can imagine. Uh, and I think the challenge with our situation was that there were there was weather um, issues for a period of the time. But once the weather issues kind of lifted, the medevac still didn't come. And and part of the reason the medevac didn't come is because behind the scenes, Eastern Health had basically cut the permanent uh, 24-7 neonatal emergency transport on uh, because of basically not wanting to pay people overtime. They've said other things. They act like it's not because of that, but we know we've spoken to the people directly involved. It's it's a situation. It was about money and not wanting to pay people to be on call. Um, and so, you know, we, we had a, 
a pretty pretty rough go of it and uh um we then spent uh, a few months out in St. John's um, before getting transferred back to uh, Goose Bay. Um, when I will say this, so and and I I haven't really spoke about it much, um, but you know at some point we'll have to have the chat. But I just haven't felt quite ready about it. But you know we received a obviously tremendous level of care from. Uh, nursing staff in particular and, and doctors who, you know, went above and beyond to in a very horrible situation. Um, like I said, one of them stayed for 24 hours because there just wasn't anybody um, else who was able to at the time. And, you know, everybody was very close to their breaking point. And so when when we saw that, the you know, there were commercial flights coming in uh, at the same time as the medevac, crew wasn't it was uh, pretty hard on everyone and you could see it in everybody who was there whether they be staff or ourselves and that's a pretty constant thing that happens there when we came back from St. John's we also uh, we were home for a bit and then back in hospital and, and we saw I think some of the, the strains of the system there as well and um, it it was you know, like I said, I'll, I'll I'll probably call in at some point and talk about some okay. of the things we saw at the uh, when we went back in the hospital afterwards. But I, I would just okay. say that money is at the root of a lot of challenges, um, and and so it, it can be a little bit frustrating uh, to see some of this. Now, I, on the on the positive end, I mean, I, we've had a son in the last year, and and we had our son in Labor Health Center, and you know, it all went and went well. I can't even imagine what it would be like right now to be an expecting mother having to go potentially from, I don't know, Nain all the way to Lab West to give birth uh, in this situation. Well, congratulations on the arrival of your son. And I didn't mean to have you relive that this morning, but you're always welcome on the program. And I appreciate the notes as well, Robert. Stay in touch. Well, we appreciate that. Thank you, Patty. I much appreciate it. Have a, have a good Christmas. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Paul is there to talk about cost of living, and then time for you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Paula, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing okay, thank you. How about you? Oh, very, very good. Good. Um, Patty, I have kind of a problem here. I'm not calling for myself. I'm calling on behalf of a friend of mine. Okay, go right ahead. Okay. About the cost of living checks that were put in the mail there last week or the week before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my friend got his $500, and he went to the bank and deposited into the bank. This was... Uh, December the 15th and as soon as he deposited into the bank he had a it, it went right directly back to the government what happened don't know and he can't find out he's after calling the bank and the bank of course they he, he just said that it went in and it came out right away right back to the government so we just had a lady tell us a story of uh, her brother, I think it was, had his check clawed back because he owed child support payments. And so they took it back. So does your friend have any outstanding fines or that type of thing? Because that might be the reason. No, 
definitely not. And like he's after calling Revenue Canada, the, the lady there told him, no, you got no nine here. And he don't owe the government of Newfoundland any money. So it's kind of a, it's looking to be kind of uh, weary, right? So who has he tried to contact at the government? Well, he was trying to contact where the check came from, the cost of living check, and why, like, why they took it back. Have you tried to call them? Because there is a number associated with this at the Tax Administration yes. Division. Yes, he, yes, he did. He's, a, he's on the phone now since 8 o'clock this morning. Yeah, there's also a, do either of you use email? Because some people are having better luck with it because of the obvious reasons. It's hard to speak with someone directly these days. Yeah, it's, uh, no, he don't use email. But, but like, the problem is here, there was a... Uh, for the cost of living, $500 for everybody for the cost of living, right? Mm-hmm. So if they put that in the bank, well, if, well he deposited it into the bank. Yeah, because no, there was no direct deposit, so he put it in himself, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, then same day, that came out. And, like, if he owed money anywhere, which he don't, like, he would have probably got a notice saying, well, here, you owe this much money and we're going to take it. But he don't owe money to anybody. Yeah, so I would have no earthly idea as to why that happened the way it did. Yeah. Because I suppose that this, uh, the most recent caller talking about it, I guess when the father or the brother, pardon me, called the government, they told him exactly what happened. So at least if you get a response, you'll be able to know what happened. Exactly, yeah. But like right now, it's kind of in limbo, right? And it's very, very frustrating making all them calls and... Oh, you call this one and you call somebody else. Like, it's just kind of a, a runaround situation, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's remarkable what's going on with some of these confusions. And, you know, even the the bank hold on it for four or five days has been problematic for some because for, for many people who got the checks, that was 500 bucks that was going to go a long way to making their life a little bit easier. Exactly. Now I do know exactly. that there's people who got the checks who earn a pretty tidy living and maybe that wasn't going to be the be all and end all for them and I wonder what they're going to do with their money even though it's none of my business but I I also wonder whether or not the people who are the absolute worst off whether or not they even got it whether because they don't have a permanent address whether or not they file their taxes there's lots of concerns out there because it's one thing for the government to tell me 392,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are going to get a check as much as 500 bucks I wonder who that needs it the most whether or not they get it or got it that's that's right patty that is exactly right yes but anyway now like i said it's kind of weird that this happened to him but like he's just gonna have to get answers from somebody yeah i'll i'll zip along an email and see if they can give me a list of reasons why monies would be clawed back we know for sure now one is outstanding child support payments but whether it be anything under the sun because if i know i'll be able to talk about it and people can be uh, prepared and thank you very much, Patty. Happy to do it. Thanks for the call this morning, Paula. You have a lovely day. You too. All right. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's see here. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, still ample opportunity for you to join us live on the air to talk about whatever's of concern and or even a bit of positive story you'd like to exchange. We'd be happy to take that one as well. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. How are you doing, Patty? Not too bad. Mike, how about you? Pretty good, thank you. I just want to put it out there. I just wondering, there, good while back, remember it was a lot of issues on with on the go with the catalytic converters, people or not people's vehicles and everything else. Yeah. 
I just wonder what's, what's, what they have in place there for those scrapyards and places that's buying those. I mean, do you have show and ID when you come in with this stuff, or is it just bought in and taken and due to the fact of what has worked and everything else? Well, it's like many places that will be willing to buy goods that may indeed be hot or stolen items. I don't know what the process is. I've never tried to do anything like that, so I don't know if they require ID or some sort of serial number for the vehicle that came off, but apparently they're worth a fair buck. I think, that, you know, when this all came out, obviously, I mean, this is worth as much as gold or, or more. I think when the deck came out and people were out, obviously robbing them off people's vehicles, and I'm sure it's still on the go today. And I think if they're bringing them to the scrapyards, other than you being, you know, a garage owner that's, you know, got vehicles that's coming in that you're scrapping, that's, you know, whether you bought them off the person or whatnot, but anybody that's coming in with any amount of those and turn them in, definitely I think those those uh, recycling places should be uh, required IDs and everything else. Fair enough. You know, to actually stop this. Yeah, I mean, if you're, for instance, uh one of the vouchers or something and you bought some of these used vehicles and you're repurposing things and you want to sell the catalytic converter to one recycling unit or another, that's easily documented and understood. But if Joe Blow walking in off the street has three catalytic converters, a big red flag should go up. Absolutely. And I think, it, you know, somebody should check in this with, with those recycling places or somebody with the government to just, you know, just to stop this all together. Because, I mean, it's, I think it's just crazy. People just out there, you know, cut those off got off them with a blink of an eye and gathering up so many of them and turning them in and probably, like I said, just walking in, passing them in and then getting a big dollar where it's just costing everybody else with it through their insurance and everything else. I think anytime something like that comes up, uh, restrictions should be put in place big time and IDs and everything else. Well, catalytic converters uh, became a reality because of government regulation. I think it originates in California to try to deal with smog and the toxins released from your internal combustion engine. There's even wood stoves. Uh, some wood stoves actually use a catalytic converter as well. But uh, you make a fair suggestion there because if they are a lucrative item for those who are willing to steal them off your rig, then policing how they get resold is probably a fair idea. I mean, there's not a big ask for the retail, or pardon me, the recycling uh, group either to simply say, not. we'd like to have an ID, right, so that we can document Absolutely. who you are. Absolutely, guys. I mean, those people are not going there just picking the, the different vehicles to take them off. They're going to take them off whatever they can. Yep. You take somebody with a new vehicle that designed it, per se, you're walking with a new catalytic converter or a bunch of them, obviously, red flags should walk in. Well, here, here's a bit of feedback uh, immediately from a listener named Todd. Apparently, you have to show your driver's license. Oh, well, okay. You answer my questions. Perfect. That makes sense to me. Perfect. But then again, that person could show his ID, but is he still legit? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, driver's licenses are sort of hard to get a fakie that would be passable, but uh, at least now we know that much that you actually have to show your driver's license. So that one is a good, that's a good thing. All right, then, Patty. Thanks a lot, Mike. Take care. Okay, have a good All right, day. you Bye-bye. too. Bye. Uh, let's go to line number one. Bob Bill, you're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Not too bad. How about you? Yeah, good. Uh, yes, you do have to show a driver's license, and if I'm not mistaken, I think that comes from the, that's a federal law. I, I'm pretty sure of that, because we're losing a lot of them across the country, so they introduced the saying that you got to show ID in order to sell a catalytic converter. They were losing that many of them. Well, it makes complete sense to me, because if uh, something is born of government regulation, then control throughout the life of that unit, in this case a catalytic converter, if they were something that the thieves were going for in droves nationwide, then something had to be done, and that's a good step in the right direction, a government picture ID. 
Yes, I believe that's what you you got to present. But like I said, I, I'll look into it. But I'm thinking it's a Fed law for some reason. I looked at it before when back in the spring there was a lot disappearing because I mean these things are worth a fortune. Yeah, I don't know how much they're worth, and maybe we shouldn't put a dollar value out there for the next willing criminal. But uh, I'm glad I get that instant feedback. That makes the show go around. Mike had a question. Todd answered it within seconds. Perfect. Patty, you have a good one. You too, Bill. All the best. All right. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I'll have a little quick Google here in a little while to find out how that measure was taken because it only makes sense for, you know, again, it's not born in Canada. And if I remember correctly, I might be out to lunch here, but it's as late as the 70s, like 75, 76, 77, somewhere, where once again, you know, they refer to it as California emission standards. So the creation of this catalytic converter, and it be- basically just does a capture of the worst toxins, converts them into less lethal or uh, less dangerous toxins to be released from your internal combustion engine rig. And I do know there's a couple of wood stove products that use catalytic converters as well. So yeah, I mean, whether or not it was the feds or uh, the provinces got together to agree on approach because for instance if you're living in Alberta close by the Saskatchewan border and Saskatchewan doesn't have the same rules in place then people be willing to take a bit of a drive uh, just like uh, Kramer and Newman did with the recyclables to go to the next jurisdiction over to get away what get away with it pull a fast one uh, one recycling unit or another so big thanks to Todd and others like that that happens really frequently here on the program I try to make sure I give credit where due like that was Todd's uh, knowledge of it not mine and so a driver's license or a government picture ID to sell one of those catalytic converters okay final check in on the Twitter box <clears throat> or VOCM open line you can follow us there our email address is openline at VOCM.com out of the corner of my eye I see a couple there that might be of interest after the program uh, okay, this is a there's a video being shared by this fella about the Dex Awash program. So it's about the area of Green Bay and farming at the time. He says, yeah, I might find it interesting. I absolutely will, and I'll forward that to my private email to peruse later this afternoon. Jerry says, if they weren't eligible for the check, they would not have received it. There's something else to those stories. Fair enough. Sometimes some of these things might be after the fact, considering that government moved pretty quick on this one, but Jerry makes a good point. If they knew you weren't eligible, you probably shouldn't have gotten the check in the first place. All right, good show today, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM at Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer David Williams, I'm your host Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.